gets explosion. <laughs> Drum roll. Welcome back, you guys, to another episode of the Black and Empowered podcast. We are so happy to still be joining you all in the midst of the world ending in at least a dozen different ways. And I'm looking at our co-host and our lovely guest for today and everyone's bright and shiny. So I'm also glad that we are not just joining you, but we are thriving in our own ways, despite, like I said, the world ending. Um, I want to start for our, our guest today who said that she was a little nervous before we started with an icebreaker. So hopefully this Wait. helps. Before you jump into Icebreaker, you got to introduce uh, Ashanti and Niara. This is their first time on a new episode. Glory, glory. So we introduced them at the beginning of season two. Brianna, you do it. Um, Mom, these your kids. I'm kidding. <laughs> these your sisters. So sisters. go ahead. Yeah. These kids. Anywho, before we jump into Icebreaker, we have mm-hmm. two new co-hosts for the Black and Empower podcast. Um, they're my sisters. I love them so dearly. They're so cute. Um, welcome them. Celebrate them. We are happy that they are here. We have Ashanti and Niara. Hey. Um, they're both first years at Georgia State in the clinical community program. Well, rising second, second year. Come on, what's that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> They're so young, you know, it's new to this. Um, so yeah, welcome them to the podcast. Okay, there you go. Thanks, Bree Bree. Hey, what's Hello, baby. Hey. Excited to be with y'all again. Listen, you know what? We need to do just an update episode where we talk about the survival tactics that you guys have made to, or made, borrowed, created, to survive through your first year in grad school in the midst of 99 different pandemics. However, let's jump into today's episode. I think it's going to be an interesting and fun one. Um, As I was saying, we do have a guest. We're gonna have her introduce herself here shortly, but to loosen up her nerves, we are going to provide her with the opportunity to play a game with us. Have you ever played the Song Association Challenge? I don't think so, no. Okay, so, well, I'll tell you her name so it's not weird. And those of you who are watching, you can see her on the screen. This is Lisa. We are going to play what's called the Song Association Challenge. It is, I think, very cute. Um, It helps to loosen up nerves. It helps to get your creative juices flowing. It helps you to kind of think outside the box. So what we do is we just kind of round robin. We start by saying a word, any word, a random word, and the person who we call on, their job is to just sing a song that has that word that the previous person said in the title or the lyrics. So um, you have 10 seconds. It's, I say it's low pressure, but 10 seconds go by fast. So you do have to be kind of quick on your feet. But like I said, it is cute. And if you can't think of one, we usually help you out. No penalty. Um, But we are competitive. So Mm-hmm. Come with it. Who wants to go first? I can go first. Am I the one that's singing the song or y'all gonna give me the thing? No, say a word. 
and then pass it. Okay. You got to pick somebody to do the word. Right. Oh, do I say it before or after? No, pick somebody. Before. You pick somebody before. And then come to you. Okay. Okay. Ah. (laughs) Ooh. I was driving down the street today and I saw a really pretty flower. Flower is your word. No, she gave us a story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, um, uh, flower. Um, Five. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Flower, flower. It's not coming to me. Um, mm. <laughs> I didn't have a. Isn't that Bruno Mars? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking of. I don't listen to Bruno Mars, so I didn't. Yeah. I should have bought you flowers. Oh, oh, I know that. I singing. Dang. Dang. So what happens next? She <laughs> she gives a, a, a word to somebody. Okay. Anybody okay. else? Um. Uh, Lisa. Um, your word is uh um unhappy. 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 <laughs> Okay, give me a second. Well, you have ten. You know, I had a big emo phase back in the day, so it should not be this hard for me to think of an unhappy word in a song. Um, I really can't think of anything unhappy. Sorry, and I can't help you. Yeah, can I call yeah. a friend? Oh no, Mm-mm, don't call me. I don't know. It <laughs> Nia, what's the song? You got one? What song you think it's a song called Unhappy, but um, it's an old song. Okay, yeah. Sing it. Sorry. Sing it. It's patient. It's not even no, fun. I don't really know. No, no. I was just trying to make it difficult. Wait, wait, wait. You don't know the song? Hold on. Time out. Time out. <laughs> you don't know the song? I thought it just had to be a word. I had to know the song too. Oh, that wasn't yes. Oh, okay. Um. Okay. So what's the another word? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Hmm. Uh, going going okay the first song that came to my mind you know that song sugar we're going down that was the first song that came to my, came to my mind oh yeah. I, I have to sing it okay yeah because i don't know fallout boy back oh i don't have to sing it you do, okay. Oh, I do. okay fallout boy back in the day oh my god i can't believe about to do this we're <laughs> we're going down down sugar we're oh. going down swinging Oh, I know that song, Lisa. I know that song. <laughs> okay, I don't know any of the words. Great. 
Yeah, you did it. That was a good icebreaker. I feel a lot less nervous now. Yay. And now less pressure. You just have to give a word to somebody else. Okay. I'm going to do... Okay, this is the only song that's coming to my mind. Kissed. Oh, and I have to pick someone. Oh, yes. Free. Kissed. Um, this may not have been the most appropriate choice, but <laughs> this is the first thing that came to my mind. What's that man name? Mm, is it Kiss by Rose? No. Bill, yeah. Bill, right? This Kiss by Rose, right? You better sign it. I don't know the. I don't know how to sing it. It's kiss, kiss of a kiss from a rose. Kiss. I don't know. I know it's kiss from a rose by a rose, but I don't think he says kissed. Mm. I thought it was. Have you ever been kissed by a rose? But that's probably a different song I'm singing. Yeah, I don't think that's the seal it's song. Fire rose. Well, that works. We'll take it. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking I kissed a girl, Katie Perry. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Didn't even think about that. I was thinking Chris Brown. Kiss, kiss. Mm-hmm. I'm weak. You look like you like Chris Brown. <laughs> Not she look like it. I'm weak. What's that supposed to be? <laughs> you look like you used to have Chris Brown posters in your room. Oh, baby. I did. Okay. See, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> oh, okay. Aisha, your word is red. The color. Ooh, this is inappropriate as well, but <laughs> come to my door. Take off my clothes. Like turn on the red light. <laughs> I don't know another song with red. That's funny. That oh, works. That works. Who hasn't gone, Niara? She's the first one. Oh, I didn't go. Yeah. Oh, Ashanti. Yes. I've been thinking about this word all day because it's based on our episode title. Your word is communicate. And it's a song. It's a song. Or communication, communicating. Use a derivative. Um, <laughs> I just started singing it and not quite. Ooh, that's a good one. Ooh. <laughs> I'm out. Is that it? Communicate. You gotta communicate with me, baby. It's something she made that up. Definitely made that up. <laughs> Definitely made that. Up. <laughs> she was gonna play it off like it was a real. It song. Had confidence. <laughs> it had to be Khalid. Come on. Who? That's in that young Khalid. 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 All right, at least it's three different versions. It's what not just song Khalid. is it though? It's Khalid. It's Khalid. Khalid is DJ Khalid. That's yeah. Khalid. I thought he just took the DJ off and was all right. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. No. <laughs> I would tell Wes to cut it, but we're gonna leave that because I'm elderly. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. We can't transition. 
That was great. That was cute. Is your ice broken? Yay, Lisa. You did a good job. <laughs> um, so today in Black Excellence, we are going to shout out the baddest, Riri, Loriana. Um, we're going to shout her out for not only being a billionaire, period, but she is also, she also just had a baby, period. And she's coming out with a hair care line. She's doing Fenty hair. So shout out to her for continuing to take over the world. And she's not even making music. So shout out to her. She said, I do more than sing, honey. Um, Saturating every market. I mean, we could get an album though, but okay. She right. said, baby, you look something, something. Right. I can make billions without music, baby. So I'm gonna do it. So what? shout what? out to her for being a billionaire, being bad, being the greatest to ever do it. Period. Hey man, long live Riri. I heard with baby. It's a boy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Little ASAP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lowercase okay so today's episode focuses on science communication and academia we are joined today by lisa bartolomeo a rising six-year graduate student in the clinical psychology department at the university of georgia lisa please tell us who you are a little bit about yourself your research background and anything else <laughs> Yes, thank you so much for the introduction and for having me on today, I'm so excited. So a little bit about me, I'm from Arizona originally. I love that dry heat, it's very difficult for me in this humid weather we've been having lately, but I'm surviving. Uh, in terms of my research, I research psychosis, uh, people with chronic uh, schizophrenia spectrum disorders, and then also youth at clinical high risk for psychosis. So I study like different mechanisms underlying different symptoms of psychosis. And I kind of look at a lot of different emotional abnormalities. So I have kind of two programs to my research like that, which I recommend people do if they're interested in science, always have two little things at least going. I love that Lisa. That's one of the things that we talk about um, quite often is the ways that we can expand our research, the ways that we can utilize, we call them different pillars. Um, towards reaching the same ultimate goal. So certainly for you, it sounds like understanding mechanisms that lead to psychosis as well as outcomes that are associated with it. Do you have any um, treatment related interests? Yes, thank you so much for asking because pretty much everything we do in my lab and in my research is with the hope of informing targets for intervention. So within psychosis, you know, we don't have any FDA approved treatments for a particular type of symptom that people with psychosis experience, which is negative symptoms. So my work focuses on, well, can we identify the underlying mechanisms of these symptoms so that then maybe we can create novel treatments that are gonna be more effective for treating these symptoms. And that can be like a psychosocial, like a therapeutic intervention, meeting with a therapist, or maybe it would be a pharmacological, a medication sort of intervention, or maybe a combination of the two. So I think that's our overarching game or aim, but it takes some time, you know, it's a slow process, but every bit helps, I think. 
Well, thank you for your contributions to the field. I know that psychosis is um, similar to kind of the constructs that we're interested in, in that um, individuals who have psychosis are oftentimes stigmatized. It's often difficult to seek out care. And when you do receive care, there's a lot of mistrust um, kind of associated with getting that kind of medical and mental health attention. Um, so that's really important work that you're doing, especially thinking about ways to not only understand, but also intervene upon these things that individuals are struggling with. So thank you so much for that work that you do. We're really excited to have you here. And we're gonna talk about a little bit later how we've crossed paths and kind of integrated our interests in our work that we're doing together. Yes, and uh, as Aisha said, it's so glad to have you, Lisa. So I do kind of want to jump in <clears throat> on what we're focusing on today, which is communicating uh, science and academia, making what we do more in simpler terms. So what I will ask, Lisa, how do you maximize um, the reach of your research? How do you make it um, reachable to the public? Right, so ad admittedly, a lot of my research is communicated within the academic world. The state that I'm in in my training as a grad student, I really prioritize getting publications and doing presentations in academic settings, which is not helpful in terms of relaying that information to the public. So that's definitely something that moving forward, I'd like to try to do more of with my research. But I would say that the ways that we have communicated to the public include going to community health centers. My PI, Dr. Strauss, he'll give workshops and sometimes we attend and help out. Um, he'll give workshops where he'll talk to counselors about different techniques for treating different symptoms of psychosis. Um, and a lot of that is based off research and empirical evidence, you know, evidence-based treatment recommendations, things of that nature. So I think that's probably like the biggest impact we have in terms of communicating research in a way that's going to directly help people while also informing members of the public. Because as Aisha mentioned, it is such a stigmatizing condition. Um, so I think another big way is just communicating my, about my research to people in my personal life. I think that can also have a big impact. And maybe, you know, they'll go share that information with someone else. They'll learn something that they thought was interesting or that they had some misconception about. You know, for example, people are always really surprised to learn that people with psychosis are not typically violent. They're more likely to be the victim of violence than the perpetrator. So little tidbits like that that you can teach people can go a long way. So even just in your personal life, you can have an impact. Whether it's, on a, whether it's not on a big scale, it can reach more people than maybe you think it would. Um, and then other things, you know, we have a lot of opportunities at UGA to communicate, whether it's being a teaching assistant for a class and getting to guest lecture about a particular topic, you can fit in things about your research there. So you're teaching students about up-to-date information rather than maybe what they're reading about in their textbook or you know, relying on things that they've just heard over time. So I think those for me are the top three, clinical settings, personal life, and then also in a teaching capacity when possible. Yeah, Lisa, and I like the way you talked about the clinical setting, and I wanted you to talk a little bit more about the work that you've done to like maximize your research in a clinical setting, because I know 
all of us here are in a clinical space. So I'm interested to hear about how you've used your research in more of your clinical work. Totally. So as I mentioned before, a lot of my research focuses on negative symptoms and we don't really have a lot of treatments for that or really any FDA approved treatments or treatments that have been shown to be really, really effective and have long lasting effects. So I think for a lot of people, it's understanding how to conceptualize those symptoms. And we can pull in evidence from our research to be like, well, this is how we know these symptoms manifest in daily life. So maybe someone has really low motivation for activities, right? They're not gonna be very active in their day to day. We have a lot of different evidence from our research that supports that from multiple modes of analysis. So we can talk about what we see in clinical interviews from patients. We can talk about what we see from ecological momentary assessment. So if people wear like a smart band and carry their phone and we're actually able to see they're less active during the day. Um, and then also incorporating research from, or yeah, treatment research. So telling people about what they, about what we know about these treatments. So the effectiveness of CBT for negative symptoms, for example. Your everyday provider out in the community may not know that that's gonna take at least maybe a year for you to see any benefit or outcome. So maybe they would get discouraged and stop doing that therapy at some point or try to refer to something else. So we have to, I think, take into account that these people in clinical settings, counselors, social workers, psychiatrists, et cetera, they don't always have a lot of free time to be reading. You know, they don't have a lot of time to be looking at research necessarily. They have big caseloads, they're busy. A lot of the times they're overworked. So having someone come in for like a grand rounds or something like that and give a presentation is an easy way to get that, that information to them. No, that's actually really helpful for someone who doesn't study schizophrenia at all. Um, we study PTSD and racial trauma, and we always talk about, in terms of treatment conceptualization, um, not, um, not victim blaming. We always talk about being able to really conceptualize, you're calling them negative symptoms, but if we think about avoidance, if we think about withdrawal, um, even if you think about depression, that might be comorbid with schizophrenia. Um, when we think about conceptualization, we always do mention, um, right, these individuals aren't checked out, they aren't antisocial, they aren't, um, you know, any of these other things that we might characterize them as, they aren't, you know, by nature avoidant, right, but it's this kind of underlying condition that we need to conceptualize and then treat that. And then we will start to see some um, de decrease in some of those negative symptoms or some um, kind of positive symptom expression that we do wanna see. Um, so that's really interesting in terms of the ways that you're able to use kind of the results of your research to talk about clinicians as well. Yeah. And as a graduate student, you're starting to get some of those experiences and that's also um, a really good training opportunity for you too. Absolutely. It's been really valuable. What about others? How have you been communicating science within your graduate training? I can start. Um, so I would say I'm still definitely new with like starting my research trajectory and the things that I want to do. Um, 
So, so far, I think I would say I utilize social media the most, like academic Twitter, especially, and just kind of getting the word out there about what it is that I'm doing um, and kind of spreading that information that way. Um, like Lisa said, also getting into the community, and that's what I plan on doing more, whether that is working with different organizations, like locally, um, or speaking on different panels about the type of work that we're doing and the importance of it, um, making some of the materials accessible. So either making them available on websites or like with our care package, I should making them um, in physical copies for people. I think kind of definitely getting into the community um, and speaking about the things that we're doing, it's important, why it's important, how it's helpful and how the research kind of supports that. Um, is a way that I plan on um, kind of maximizing um, the reach of my research. And then also I have a lot of uh, like peers who, who work in academia now as either counselors or their professors. And so like not all of them have access to like academic art um, journals and articles and stuff. So I have people like, hey, can you get this article for me? Because um, otherwise I have to pay for it. And I'm like, yeah, I got you, no problem. So it's like kind of like, making it accessible in the way that I know how right now until I'm in a position to kind of make systemic changes. Um, so kind of starting like that, that's what I would say I do. Yeah, and I think Siniara's point, a part of that is, is using the capital that we have now, you know, like realizing a lot of times when we are making the transition from, you know, undergrad or like where we were previously, we, we're moving up, you know? And so as you move up, you gain more access to certain things and things that people don't readily have access to. And so being able to use that to reach back and pull people forward with you. Um, and so I feel like that's some of the ways that I communicate or maximize the reach of my research is pulling the people that are behind me or next to me forward with me. Um, and so that being similar to what you said, Lisa, around incorporating it into my clinical work. So a lot of times um, when I pick external practicum spots or uh, sites, I'm thinking about how can I use the research that I'm doing to maximize the care that people are receiving at these hospitals or these community centers and making sure that one, not only are they aware of the research that I'm doing, but also how that research looks for them, right? Allowing them to know that you're seen, you're heard in this work and that what you're experiencing is not just, you know, some made up thing that people try to negate, but this is your experience that I'm here and I see and I understand. Um, I also think similarly, social media has really been a big one. And I think throughout the pandemic, it's become really big of like communicating what's going on, whether it be um, writing a chapter in a book or whether it be talking about your projects on Twitter or Instagram, like using those different platforms as a way to communicate what I'm doing, how it's impacting the work that I'm, I believe in and the practices that are important to me. Um, and so I always just go on this idea of like me search is research. And so I see myself in my work and I believe in making sure that other people have access to it so they can see themselves as well. I love that, Bree. I think, you know, knowledge is power. And it seems like that's something you really value is making sure that people have access to that knowledge and that that can empower them in a lot of different ways. I love that you just said empower. I'm over here standing 
Yes, I definitely think that the more that we're able to um, provide that psychoeducation, I think that's a, a large part of what we do in terms of our social media awareness, in terms of our public health messaging campaign, our racial trauma guide, right? These are all resources that we do disseminate to the public, to the community, um, via online, via our signs and posters that we have, even via this podcast is science communication. Um, and I do think that it's really important to think about the ways that we are talking to individuals, talking being, um, making our polls, talking being the language that we use in those tip sheets or in those handouts or psychoeducation materials so that we are validating the experiences of our community members, we're capturing the experiences of our community members. So Niara um, just talked a little bit about the way that she's using social media to do recruitment for her thesis project, but that's to make sure that she has the voices of the community who she's hoping to help um, within the research that's being conducted. So I think it's really important, especially for those of us. So Ashanti and Niara are both in clinical community programs. So it was really important within our training to get out into the community um, while we are collecting data and collecting their experiences, as well as when we're disseminating and trying to give them access to those resources. Um, Lisa, you did talk a little bit about uh, yourself being in academia and you've gotten some experience with kind of academic publications. Um, before we talk about that in particular, I think we're going to transition into our research spotlights and maybe even some barriers. Um, I wanted to really briefly, just for the point of science communication, talk about um, 10 effective communication tips for scientists. So I actually located these online. Brian Eastwood posted these um, 10 points. I'm going to tell you them very briefly, but there is more information, like I said, that you can find online from Brian Eastwood about ways to communicate science to the public. And these are all things that we've said. These are all things that we know, but it is, um, I think, really important to highlight them. Um, so just a few of those are knowing your audience being the first one. So the way that we talk to academics, the way that we talk to clinicians, even, as Lisa was saying, as we're doing trainings, is different than the way that we talk to our family members or our friends um, or even members of the community. So knowing your audience is really important in terms of the ways that you talk about your research, the ways that you talk about the importance and the implications. So what does this mean for you? You want to make sure that you're always um, making the, the research and the outcomes of your research relevant and that you let your audience know why either you are disseminating that research to them or why you are integrating them in that research. Um, and that does segue into the second point, which is knowing the point of your communication, right? Is that to validate your experiences? Is that to provide psychoeducation? Is that to provide training? Or is that just to come back after we've done those things and to provide the results of our studies? So it's really important to be um, really transparent in terms of the goals of your communication, particularly for marginalized groups. I think that that helps to kind of dismantle some of that mistrust that you were alluding to earlier, Lisa. Um, also, avoiding jargon is really important. So uh, making sure that right when you're publishing academically, you're going to be using these big words. But when you're talking to members of the community, do your best to avoid jargon. 
um, and to explain wherever necessary. So if you are introducing, say, a new term, um, for us in particular, we talk about racial stressors. So a lot of people know what microaggressions are, for example. But we do go a little more in depth depending on um, kind of the developmental background. If we're talking to older adolescents, we'll tell them, right, these are the three types of microaggressions. This is what a microinvalidation, a microinsult, and a microassault is. Um, so we do say avoid jargon, but that is to say if you are introducing something new, you also can provide that definition in order to benefit and like Lisa said, empower your communities. And then I'm actually going to stop here because this last point is really important. It says stick to three points. This is my fourth one and I said that there were 10. So please go back. Um, and look into these 10 effective communication tips for scientists. It is evidence-based. I do think that it is very beneficial. But the last point that I'll make is to keep it brief. Um, and Lisa, I'm sure we'll talk about that when she talks about her process for developing the research spotlights. So in the air of maximizing our research, I think it's also important for us to kind of talk about barriers right to people being able to access a lot of this work so we're talking about how we've maximized our reach but I think it's important for us to also reflect on some of the the barriers that we've noticed right as we've matriculated through these different programs in different spaces but just ones that we've also encountered so I want us to kind of talk a little bit about some barriers that we've noticed um, between like academia and the public and accessing this scientific um, communication and just scientific efforts in general. Nia already talked about a really big one. Um, <laughs> we struggle with dismantling that one all the time. So how do we get access to peer-reviewed publications if we aren't a part of academia? Um, they're like 35 bucks an article right now, right? And if you want journal subscription, you're paying hundreds of dollars a year just to get access to scientific information. I think that's a really big barrier. And on the academic side of that, if you want to make your publication open access, that's going to cost you thousands of dollars. Like I, I was floored when I heard that I had no idea how expensive it was to make something open access. And a lot of people cannot afford that in academia. So it's, it's a massive block that people can't really overcome. They, they can't make it open access if they can't afford that. And if they don't have grant funding, especially, it's gonna be really hard for you to afford that. Ooh, one thing, um, Niara, I know you're gonna do this once you start getting your pubs. A research gate does allow you to upload a free PDF. So if people do find your article, that's like one thing that one individual can do. It doesn't, you know, decolonize the way that individuals are able to um, access information. But if someone Googles a particular or article and they want access to it, we can um, just kind of publicly give those out now, um, but only if you're an author on them. Otherwise, I would just make it somebody's job to have a database where you have all the, all the articles for free, but right, yeah. Another barrier on the academic side is that I think there's kind of a lack of incentive for people to communicate with the public. That's something that for a lot of academics, they would need to, like they're, you know, they're very busy and it can be hard for them to pull aside that time. And I'll go into this a little bit later when I talk more about our process of doing or disseminating the research through the research spotlights that we do. But it can take a while to kind of go from this academic 
jargon way of speaking and thinking to translating it in a more layperson language. It can take a, it takes a while, you know, to think through that. So it can be time consuming, especially when you're first getting started. And if you don't have a lot of time in your schedule, let's say you're teaching, you're doing research, you're supervising clinical students, it can be hard, I think, to make that time if it's not something that you're making actively a priority. So that's something that maybe could come at like an institutional level, incentivizing that more. I don't know how realistic that is, unfortunately. Lisa, I need to add you to this paper I'm writing with some colleagues of mine. We're writing about just that. So how do we integrate mass media and social media into the promotion and tenure process? And you're absolutely correct. It's not incentivized currently. Currently, it's just research publication, grant funding, teaching, and service. And within service, there's not um, public health impact. Even in some departments, these psychoeducation materials, there aren't products that are incentivized in the promotion and tenure process. So you're absolutely right in that. Um, it is a large barrier for not only us faculty, but also graduate students who are thinking about the ways to best maximize their time. They're saying, oh, well, I need this peer-reviewed pub. That's what is, we call it currency, right? That's the currency on my CV. There's also like this uh, silent pressure that we kind of have to perform in academia as well. And so, while there might be people who do want to like disseminate the work that they're doing into the community, we also have it in our heads like, okay, no, I need publications. I have to get my name out there. I have to acquaint with um, these different scholars. Like I have to get the pubs. Um, and that pressure can kind of overwhelm people and then also kind of like outweigh the desire to like get it into the community as well. Cause if you don't have the, the resources you need to get it into the community, that's not gonna be your focus. Your focus is gonna be like, nope, I need these pubs on my CV. I need to get these grants. I need to get this funding. So you're not really thinking about that. So I think that added pressure also makes it difficult um, when you're thinking about it like that. It's like, okay, well, what's the benefit of me spending money or going out of my way to get this into the community and like, if I'm not going to be rewarded for, I might even be penalized for it, depending on which institution I'm at. So it's kind of like, I guess you got to just find your why in a sense when it comes to that, because it's just like, okay, well, do I go for like the traditional, nope, let's get these pubs, let's get this funding, let's do this and find a way to bring it into the community or just like focus on one or the other. So I think that pressure is also really difficult for um, at least as speaking as a graduate student. Um, and I'm sure maybe for faculty as well and for like other graduate students. Now, when I was a graduate student, I had on my desk, publish or perish. <laughs> and then internship and even postdoc. And certainly at the very beginning of faculty, it was grant or go home. Like you have these sayings and you have these things that you tell yourself, but damn, like if I don't publish, am I going to die academically? Like that is tremendous pressure that absolutely no one should need. And then, right, because we do, again, community-based research, that takes time. And then we start to think with our resources, wait, I need to just collect basic data and make it quick and fast and sexy, right? Something that I can get out there as opposed to this really slow value-based, you're doing qualitative research, right? So that's to say, we're not really incentivized for the amount of time or the depth of our research as much as we are people even to get into graduate school some people are saying listen I'm just counting pubs top 50 percent you're getting interviews lower 50 percent you're not even getting spoken to right and that is to really talk about the ways in which we we do value um, kind of that empirical data we value 
um, communicating amongst ourselves more than we value sometimes, it seems, communicating and really helping the community. And it's crazy, all these points, like the whole, the pressure, the publications, the incentives, even people coming into programs have at least three pubs, which is kind of insane because it's like, where did you learn that from? Or just the pressure to just get on someone as a second or third author when you really haven't done the work. Um, and so the thing about it is just, I think about it a lot, like publish or perish, where in these programs are kind of grooming you to truly kind of stay in that, what would I say, elitist bubble? Because systemically it's just going in a circle. If, if we're just pleasing ourselves with our own publications, we're only sharing this with, with each other. The publications cost money. The, the regular public does not have access to it. They don't understand what we're saying. I'm gonna be so frank, half the time, I don't know what we're saying. So it, it's, it's yeah. a constant deciphering of what we're trying to say in simpler terms. And it just doesn't really make sense because now it falls back on the, the lack of the impact on the community, what you're trying, who you're trying to serve. If not a community, why are you doing this research? And I think as we keep going through these programs, and even, if, you know, when we start getting hired by these jobs, especially if you're academic, so they quote, you, you focus more on moving on up, like moving on up the ladder constantly, consistently, and, and Unfortunately, the people that you you started to have in mind when you want to do this work, they get left behind. Um, and it's an unfortunate reality, but I think um, it's just the way these programs are, are grooming you to just be above and beyond um, researchers and never really including the people you're trying to impact in, in your research. So those are really good points. I'm oh, sorry. No worries. I was just going to add on to that, that when you think about research that's grant funded, especially like NIH funded research, that's taxpayer dollars. You know, these people are funding, yeah. the community is funding this and they don't even get to see the, the results of that and what they're paying for. I think that's just crazy, you know, that, that we don't think that way, that, you know, they are literally funding this and they don't get to see the end product. It just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It, that's not the way that it should be. Science should be a global thing that everyone's in on, in my opinion. And it's not like, like you said, it's like this elitist ivory tower. We all get into our academic silos. This paper I'm so focused on, what, like five people are going to read it maybe all the way through the majority are just going to read my abstract pick out some key points and call it a day it is it would make a lot bigger impact you can imagine if you were clearly communicating that to the community who can actually use that information and realizing that like a lot of it is profiting off of the same community that needs this work right like you're using this community to inform the research but you're not bringing that information back to the community to help this same community that's funding the research. It's the same cycle of like, I'm going to use you to get the pub, but I'm not yeah, going to bring back the information <laughs> to make sure that you're better, right? Like, I'm not going to push you forward. I'm going to keep you where you are, but I'm going to profit and push myself forward and not think about you. Um, and so thinking about how that in itself just speaks to how academia as a whole um, pushes us in some ways to be inhumane, right? Like 
we are not functioning as humans. We become robots. We become, you can't take time off. You have to keep working and keep doing these things and you can't, you know, enjoy life. You can't enjoy your family. You can't enjoy those different things without repercussions, right? Without it being, oh, you don't have enough pubs. Oh, you need to do these extra trainings. You need to do these extra things in order to make yourself competitive. And it's just like, that's, it's not everybody's thing. And especially when you're a person of color, you have a, a, additional barriers that are in front of you that you have to jump over. And so thinking about how those things play into it as well, when we think about intersectional identities and how that impacts people's experiences, but also again, their access to this communication. So even if you're in graduate school as a graduate student, that doesn't mean that you have access to the information either. You still in some ways are being being protected or gate kept from certain things as well and so realizing there's a community level gatekeeping there's a graduate student level gatekeeping there's a faculty member level like gatekeeping like all of it happens at each individual level and so figuring out ways to open those doors for everybody so that everybody has access to this useful and important information because it's not from a lack of interest by any right. means like I don't know about you guys, but in, in um, my day-to-day -day research experiences, participants are always asking, like, when do I get to know what you found? And, you know, we'll be like, oh, you know, the paper obviously will take some time to write, but we'd love to send it to you when it when it's done. And it's really cool for them to be like, wow, I was part of this. I contributed to this because I participated in this study. Look what came out of it. That is so exciting for research participants. And I, they want to know, you know, it's like there's a lack of curiosity. It's really on our side, I think, that, that there's the failure. Not even a think, like that's a fact. Yeah, that's so important. And I think we are at a, a turning point in academia, certainly, where there are subsets of individuals. I think those who focus on social justice, those who focus on helping professions, those who focus on stigmatized and marginalized populations like yourself, Lisa, are starting to push back against the academy in terms of seeking out incentives, seeking out ways to um, promote the work that they are doing, seeking out ways to spread the value of the work that they are doing in order to be able to sustain that work in academia, but also to rebuild what you guys are describing is mistrust. So we're not talking about a syphilis study or the Tuskegee experiment, but we are talking about misuse of research participants. We are talking about not staying true to what we say, if we say we're going to come back and, and talk about our results or disseminate our results or show you the final product of, right, what you've helped contribute to. I do think that if time after time these communities aren't seeing us until we're in the collection stage, then ultimately they're going to start being receptive to that information. They're going to start or stop being receptive to those outcomes. And I do think um, that with this kind of turn in academia, this kind of restructuring of the ivory tower, we're able to start using recognizing these barriers and using them as stepping stones to, again, amplify our work for the larger communities, but also use them as facilitators to connecting with those communities. Uh, so for example, even with us, right, when we first started the Racial Trauma Task Force, we went to our programs and said, hey, we need funding. 
right? But that's to say we need funding not to continue talking amongst ourselves, but we need funding to go and reach those populations that we say we want to be able to help and to communicate with those populations as well. So I think it's really important that as we are within kind of the structure, as we are receiving the training from the structure and taking that into other spaces, that we are staying and doing that work, um, or while we are here, we are doing that work to make it better so that, right, academia doesn't end up being a place that none of us are. We don't want to, you know, in this case, let racism win or let these kind of structures and systems win. We want to be able to change the policy. We want to be able to say, okay, ultimately, what can we do to make these peer reviews article free to the public? And how can it go from being individual to being something that institutions do? Imagine UGA or Georgia State saying, yeah, we have university logins, but if you provide another email address, we'll give everyone access to our online catalog. Transformative, right? Institutions can start to do that one by one and, and reach different communities. Um, and then eventually, right, the structure will then change. Um, so I do want to, you know, we talk about this all the time. We think about this all the time amongst ourselves. I do want to have this conversation for our audience in terms of thinking about different facilitators to science communication. I just talk about funding. I always say that when I'm talking to institutions, when I'm talking to organizations, right? Put your money where your value is. If you value individuals, if you value the community, put your funding there, right? If you value the training that your students are receiving, provide training and provide funding for that training. Um, so what other things can we think about? What other things have we talked about in terms of facilitators to communicating science? I think one is just going out, right? Like going outside of this bubble that we exist in and being able to immerse ourselves in these spaces, right? So being able to go to these community centers, going to libraries, going to different places, whether it be going to like daycares, going, you know, like all of these places that are used constantly and being able to just educate people and give them access to these things because they wouldn't readily have access to it. Like I even think about explaining a PhD to your family, right? Like that's one thing that is constantly such a struggle because a lot of people don't even know what it is. Like I'm going through comps and my parents are like, I don't really know what that means. Like what's happening? Why does this matter? Why are you taking a test? I thought you already are a PhD student. What do you mean? What? Like, there's so many questions. And so thinking about how it's just having simple conversations and breaking it down outside of the language, outside of all the jargon, and just being able to literally one by one talk to different people and realize you're giving them access to things that they didn't know they had. Like I think about, for example, with me growing up, PhD is not something that people have in my family. So like when I got to high school, that's when I started to know like, okay, what is this? Like, what is graduate school? What are we talking about? Then I got to college and I'm seeing black women who have these, who are doctors, but they're not medical doctors. And so now I'm like, this is a different level of doctor here. Like, what is the difference here? And it was because of conversations that I was able to recognize, like, this is the difference. This is what they did. This is how they got here. Um, and so being able to just do that, right? Like going out and making it accessible, right? We don't want to sit here and say, everybody needs to come to us. We need to go to them, right? We're, we're sitting up in that tower. So we need to come off that, off that tower, come off that seat 
and go and talk to people about what we're doing while we're doing it and ultimately how they can get into it as well because i feel like it's also that just not talking to them about what we do but how they can get involved as well and targeting younger generations of scientists who may not have ever heard before the importance of science communication because that's not something that is a, a focus of the curriculum you know or a, pro, a focus of the institution that they're studying at so letting them know like this is important work and why it's important in ways that they can get involved would probably be a huge way to facilitate science communication um that that was something that your point made me think of free and then i'll too just uh at the last point um like understanding and noticing what is really driving the world right now. Like the young kids, they're on TikTok, uh, Instagram. Everybody's on Instagram or Facebook. It, most people have a social media. Granted, social media can get murky. Like people can misconstrue things and, and twist your words. But at the same time, everyone is on it. So use that those platforms. If universities don't make, or let's just say academia doesn't make um, publications accessible to everyone and it's all monetized, use some of that money to you know, on Instagram, you can pay for promotions or for ads, use some of that to share the research that we're doing, make it make sure it's accessible and digestible for people to understand. So honestly, just using the platform that we have and knowing what really drives communication in the world right now. Yeah. So that might be a good time to transition into how we use these social media platforms. That sound good to everyone? Okay. So we have, um, I guess I'll start by just going into a little detail about what the research spotlights are. We keep referencing them in this episode. I'm sure you're all dying to know what is a research spotlight. So essentially it is our way on the Empower Lab Racial Task Force of disseminating information about empirical research to the public. And we do this on social media, specifically Instagram. So we've accumulated a whole bunch of publications, um, mainly things from Aisha's lab or her collaborators. And we summarize the articles into translatable accessible language. And we make them into infographics that we can post on Instagram. So the whole point of this is to make the major findings of the research digestible to the public, informative to the public, basically wanting to share that knowledge that we glean from this study or this review, this meta-analysis. We try to use a variety of different types of papers. Um, so let's see, does anyone have anything to add to that before I go into a little bit more detail? Okay. So like I said, we have a whole list of articles and they kind of all revolve around one central theme of racial equality, racial stressors, racial trauma, but there's still variety. And I think that's important. You wanna have kind of a big spread that you're giving as much information to the public as you can, but it's all kind of centered within one topic that's really informative to the community. So we have our list, we pick out spotlights, we create the infographics. We tend to break up the text by using different pictures, trying to keep people like visually engaged. Um, but I think, let me back up a bit. Let me talk first about audience. So audience, like we've said, you can reach a lot of different people over social media. 
but we also want to think about who are we actually reaching? So you have a decision to make. Should I make my profile private or should I make it public? You're obviously going to be able to reach a lot more people if your profile is public versus private, right? And think about like your selection bias. There's going to be certain people who are drawn to follow the Empower Labs Instagram, right? People who maybe care about social justice, people who care about science. Those people are probably going to be the people initially drawn to the Instagram. But one of the beauties of Instagram is that anyone can share a post. So we're able to reach people beyond who's actually following the Empower Labs Instagram, which is awesome, right? And I've seen that with my spotlights that I've reposted to my story. People I never would have expected to, to post it or to follow, they end up following. And it's so exciting to see. You're like, oh, this is gonna reach people in California. This is reaching people in Arizona. This is reaching people in Indiana, all these different places that you can't get face-to-face -face with these people necessarily. No, Lisa, this is cute. Um, one, I'm a Lisa Stan, so period. Um, but I also think to your point, when you were talking about like access as far as like public or private, but then I also think about just the language and the the way you create your graphics is really important as well. You know, like people, someone told me recently, people don't want to work hard, right? And so when we create things, we want to make sure it's easy for people to access it, but also for them to not feel like, oh, I got to do all this extra stuff to get this information. Like I got to do all this extra reading. I got to do all these extra things. And so just making it really sweet and simple to where people are able to take it and go and repost it, right? And talking about that is like a really great resource of reposting. I don't know how many times I repost stuff on my story from the Empower Lab and I see my friends repost it or I'm tagged in something and all of that and seeing how that in itself has so much power because now it's immersing into other people's social networks and social circles. And then you see posts going viral on the Empower Lab and things like that. So just thinking about how it takes from being public and private and then taking that a step further to the actual content of what you put on social media. And again, the algorithms and all the other cute stuff that makes social media what it is. So, yeah. Yes, the accessibility, the language is so key. There's so many jargon words in our articles that the average person is thinking, what does that mean? Like the last research spotlight I did, it was talking about uh, internalizing and externalizing disorders. Your average person may not know what, what that's referring to. That's like some overarching clinical term that we as clinicians use to communicate with each other. Why would we expect anyone who's not in our field to know what that means? So you have to be really clear. Anytime that I can't get away from using a jargon word, I always make sure I provide a definition. Something really brief in the parentheses, an example if I can, something that's gonna make that clear if I can't get away from using that term. Because sometimes there's not an alternative. You have to use that jargony word. But as long as you make it clear what it means, I think you're, you're golden. Um, in addition to that, something that really stood out to me what you said, Brie, is that people don't wanna do a lot of work. And one of the big audiences that we would love to reach in our spotlights are people that are involved in policy those members of the community, because those are the people that can maybe take this information and enact change with it, large scale change. 
So do you think someone, some busy policy lawmaker, politician, are they going to take the time to really, really read an article? No, but maybe they'll read an Instagram post that's just a few points. You're going to have a, a better chance at least of them reading that. So I think- if those, we tag them. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, you can tag these people like, hey, read this and you'll have a better chance than if you emailed them the publication. Hey, I think that you should read this and think about it before you make your next law. They're gonna be like, oh no. Right. Well, yeah. unfortunately. Um, so yeah, language is a is a very big one. Brevity, Aisha mentioned in that that list that you should keep it to three points. And that can definitely be difficult when you're dealing with a long academic paper. So I think, again, it comes down to your goals. What is my main point that I'm trying to get across here? So when I think about the research spotlights, I'm like, I don't really care about relaying the methods here. I don't think that's the biggest priority. I want the people to know some background information. Why is this topic important? And I want them to know the major takeaways of the research. And I want them to know what they can do with this information moving forward. Those are always how I conceptualize, like my three main goals. Why is this important? Why do we care? What did we find? What can we do with this moving forward? So those are three points, but in order to get to those three points, I often provide more detail. I'll always keep a slide to like one to two sentences. You don't want a lot of text, obviously. So keeping it brief, if you can aim for three points, great but it is gonna be a little tricky depending on what you're trying to communicate. You may not wanna communicate an actual publication. Maybe you have different ideas of what you'd like to communicate to the public. A poster presentation you did, some facts about schizophrenia. I could do that in a communication um, research Instagram post. So you, there's different ways or different things that you'll wanna communicate. And I think that'll determine how you go about it and within the bounds of the platform you're using. Like Instagram, you can only add, I think, 10 um, photos to one of those like multi-slide posts that you can scroll through. So sometimes we'll have to post multiple research spotlights. And anyone listening should really just go to the Instagram and look at them. They're cute, they're easy on the eyes, and you'll probably learn a lot. So go check them out. And, and anyone who wants to do them, so, um... We started doing these in 2020 and certainly there are a ton of different labs that are doing them now. They all look uh, different. They're all really creative. I think what Lisa just gave was really invaluable information in terms of the strategies and the ways that you can compile an effective research spotlight. So really thank you for that. That was um, an excellent summary. That was like a, a strategy tip sheet of its own for how to create one. So. I hope you guys took notes because she's really good at what she does. She's been doing it for quite some time and we have been seeing people read, share. I've gotten a couple of people even email me and say, hey, can you send me the PDF of this article that the spotlight has been about? Um, so we really appreciate that contribution as well as your kind of um, dissemination of those strategies to our audience here today as well. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun for me as well and a great way to give back. So thank you for the opportunity to work on them with you guys. Along with Lisa, y'all, we are really her biggest fan. We all stand Lisa and her speaking voice. Let me tell you, the first time I saw Lisa present, I was attention. We flow the flow. Yes. 
Lisa, let me tell you something. Lisa, I feel like people don't really know that Lisa's a big dog. She is truly that girl. Truly. Like Lisa's being real modest on this little podcast, but know that Lisa, Lisa's getting money. Okay. (laughs) Lisa is a grant girly. Lisa is that girl. So I am happy Lisa's here. I'm happy Lisa's been able to share her wisdom. I love when Lisa is talking because Lisa don't spit nothing but facts. So shout out to Lisa. Um, and I'm so happy you're here, friend. Thank you guys so much. I'm just trying to keep up with all of you. Listen, we go together. I love it. I know that I always tell Brianna and them like, y'all got now, y'all got now. Like literally lifting as you climb is so important in terms of exactly what you just did, doing the work, but also giving others the tools to do that work as well. So we really, really, really appreciate you for that. So we do, we want to do some church announcements. We always close by not only saying thank you, but reminding you guys, we, so I do, I haven't really been doing my passion purpose power sessions as much. I usually do them on Mondays, but still send those questions to the empowerlab at gmail.com. We want to be able to do a mailbag episode at the end of the season to answer the questions that you guys have. They can be about academia. They can be about getting into academia. They can be about pitfalls within academia, surviving academia, getting grants. They can be about, if you have any questions about like racial stress and racial trauma, we are not going to do therapy on the air, but certainly we can talk about coping strategies and best practices and what we've learned. Um, If you're a caregiver um, and you have questions about talking to your kids about racial stressors that they've either experienced or witnessed, send those in. We do want to be able to have that conversation with you all and to answer those questions, just kind of to interact. Um, so again, that's theempowerlab at gmail.com. We also have our lovely care package, Cultivating Awareness and Resilience Through Empowerment for Youth. So this is now available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, your favorite bookstores. The free download is still available on draishametzger.com slash care package for racial healing. Check it out. We are still recruiting participants to give us feedback on the material. So we need some caregivers, a few more teens. If you're interested, please reach out to the Empower Lab email. We'd love to schedule you for some interviews and check it out. Yes, yes. And we also have Project Navigate up and running. Um, It is a wonderful project where we are connecting the community um, individuals faced with HIV, substance misuse, and trauma to navigation services. So please, please, please check out our CNA survey that is up right now. Um, what we are doing is a community needs assessment. So we are checking the facilitators and the barriers for you all um, to access these services of HIV, substance use, and trauma. So please check that out. Those are also plugged onto our Instagram and Twitter. You can scan the QR code and it takes you right to our survey. And okay, y'all. So a book is just dropped, and the book is called Our Doctoral Journey. Um, you may see a familiar face <laughs> in the book, me. Um, I have a chapter in the book. Um, it's 24 black women authors, um, ranging from PhD students like myself to professionals. Um, and everybody is discussing their experiences of being black women. Um, in academia. It's a great read. You can get it on Amazon. We have a website, all of those great things. So go and get that book. It's a great book. 
give it to your friends who are going through this process because there's a lot of transparency, a lot of great information and just great tips for how to navigate academia while being a black woman. So period. Yes, oh, that's great. Lisa, you have any exciting church announcements? Anything you want to let the people know? Yeah, we do have a research spotlight. We have a research spotlight on, hold on one second, I'm going to tell you the title. It is uh, a review paper this time, so that's exciting. Transmitting Trauma, a Systematic Review of Vicarious Racism in Child Health. So that should be coming out soon. Definitely check it out. A lot of really good information. And it's a review article. So it's reviewing a lot of different studies. Great way to learn a lot about a lot of different research in one quick place. I love that. You guys are doing such exciting work. I know that academia is not an easy place. We talked about publish or perish and grant or go home. I did say that it was on my desk until like 2017, but Brianna will tell you, once I got rid of that, I started pushing peace and productivity so hard just to restructure my mind and the way I think about even this place that we exist within. Like, we are not here to publish. We are not here to go home. We do belong here. Our work is important. So I want to just leave you all with that reminder as well. Please keep pushing, keep fighting, keep working, right? Keep working not only for your place, but for your values and for the communities that you first came here to impact. I know, and I'm saying here, right? So that's academia. It's not the most friendly place for us. Check out Brianna's thesis publication when it comes out about Black students' Her. experiences within academia. But that's to say, right, remember why you're here. Fight for balance. Fight for balance and not only every day, right? So find a moment every day, but fight for balance every semester, every year. Celebrate your accomplishments, do the things that it takes to restore yourself so that we can continue not only publishing these articles that we need to publish and getting the funding that we need to get, but also, like we're talking about today, really reaching out and focusing on those communities that we ultimately seek to impact. Take us away, Bree. All right. Well, thank you, friends, for listening to yet again another episode of the Black and Empowered podcast. We thank you, Lisa, for being such a great guest. We are so proud of you. Um, period. This is a Lisa Stan account. Um, and that's all, folks. We will see y'all again with another episode. Um, y'all stay safe out here. Be blessed. Be peaceful. Find you some rest. And we'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.